following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning. Our reading this morning is Matthew 5:43 through 48. It is page 787 in your Red Bibles. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, today is the final Sunday in the season of Lent. Um, And it's also the final Sunday in our series Uh, looking at this book, Wholehearted Faith, together by Rachel Held Evans. I'm going to talk about the chapter on loving our enemies, which is the chapter that we are working on this week in a few minutes. Uh, But I'll also just say this. Typically during the season of Lent, we're using the lectionary, we're following the texts that are kind of assigned to the week of the year on the Christian calendar that we're in. And today would be Palm Sunday, and also... Uh, the Passion Sunday. And you could observe either of those if you were in a liturgical mood. Um, Palm Sunday, if you wanted to do those readings on your own, would be Matthew 21 and Psalm 118. You could do the Palm Sunday thing. Um, Sometimes we have like the big parade with the kids and the palms and the Hosanna and all that stuff. Not this year. So if you're dying for that, go read the texts on your own. Uh, Passion, the the texts for the Passion Liturgy are about the uh, arrest and torture and crucifixion of Jesus. It's very difficult reading, and um, but very important, I think, and actually connects to the idea of loving our enemies in a really important way. And if you are interested in engaging with those ideas, I really would encourage you to come to our Good Friday service at 11 this week. Um, many people have said to me over the years that that's the most powerful experience they've had in church all year long, including lots of people who attend Artisan every Sunday. Um, and it actually sort of seems to connect with folks who are not part of Artisan, so you'll see some new faces if you come to it. So um, I do encourage you to come on Friday at 11 p.m. Uh, if you can. So this chapter is Love Your Enemies. And, uh, of course, that teaching uh, is from Jesus. It comes from uh, his Sermon on the Mount. Caitlin just read that to you, but let me repeat for you the pertinent passage. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've probably heard me say, if you've spent any time here at Artisan Church, uh, that it can feel impossible as a pastor, as a preacher, if you will, to give a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> like... Um, it's already the greatest sermon of all time, so maybe like just go read it yourself. Um, which, by the way, you could do. It's Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, but I say it's difficult to say anything above and beyond what Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but Rachel puts me to shame here. 
because she always seems to have the most profound, lovely words to add to these teachings, and this is no exception. Um, maybe you've noticed, if you've been reading along with us, that our chosen Bible readings for each of the weeks during this series have been lined up with some of the scripture passages that she mentions in the chapter that we're reading that week. And by the way, I'll just say this one last time because it's the last Sunday of the series. If you haven't read a page or a word of this book, I, I think that my hope is that you can still kind of, uh, this won't be wasted time, I should say, for you. Uh, so don't feel like you've like, if you have that like, oh no, I didn't do the homework feeling that some of us, uh, you know, straight A type students sometimes have, um, just let that go. Just let it go because... You know, in some programs, C's get degrees. And um, I'm not saying that, you know, do the bare minimum of your spiritual life. I am saying, however, if you didn't read the chapter, we're still good, okay? Enough about that. Um, My point is that Rachel Held Evans has such incredible stuff to add to this teaching that Jesus gives. Um, And I would say, personally for me, I don't know if this is true for you, Of all of Jesus' teachings, this one, the one that tells me I should love my enemies, is the most persistently difficult to follow. Even Rachel Held Evans, who is a much kinder, gentler person than me, uh, calls this, quote, Jesus' infuriating suggestion. (laughs) Right? So I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about why it's so hard to love our enemies going beyond the fairly obvious reasons, why it's even infuriating to consider it, maybe. And then I I hope that I'll be able to offer for you some suggestions of things to think about as you try to actually do it. Maybe some new ways of approaching it that will be helpful to you. So why is it hard to love our enemies? Well, uh, in part because sometimes our enemies actually are downright evil or are doing downright evil things. Jesus does not say, love the people who annoy you. Although I think that's probably implied too. No, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that little additional phrase, Jesus has a way of like, I don't want to use a violent analogy here, but if I were to do so, you know, not appropriate for Jesus, a nonviolent person, but it's like he hits you with the, the jab and sets you up for the hook. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'll, I'll say something to acknowledge what I think is an important thing at the outset here. Uh, if you're a person who has been marginalized because of who you are as a human being. This love your enemies business is higher stakes than it is for some of us. Right? In some cases, your, your well-being or your very life could be at stake because of who you are. I acknowledge that, and further, all, further, I will acknowledge that that is not actually the case for me. never has been, and it's unlikely that it ever will be true for me that I will be uh, a target of life-threatening violence simply because of who I am. So I'll say at the beginning of this, <laughs> it's, you're like, what? He's calling this the beginning? Oh my goodness, we're going to be here a while. I'll say at the beginning of this that uh, I, I understand this may ring a little bit hollow coming from me. Um, 
if that's true, I accept it and I, I understand it. I would just add this. Uh, Jesus, I think, is a far more credible source on this topic. Jesus walked the walk, literally, of loving his enemies. Jesus walked uh, the walk carrying the cross on which they would put him to death to the top of the hill where the crucifixion occurred. And after they nailed him to that cross and mocked and derided him with his arms spread wide open because he had no other physical option, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so this is the first thing I would offer to you if you feel like this love your enemies teaching is so difficult. Look to Jesus. Meditate on the sufferings of Christ and his response to those sufferings. Specifically, his response to the people who caused them. There is, I have to say, literally no better week in the entire year to meditate on the sufferings of Christ than this coming week, which is Holy Week. So I would encourage you to read those Passion texts. I would encourage you, again, to come to the Good Friday service if you want a... uh, new way to engage with the idea of Jesus' sufferings, that might be it. Look to Jesus. Meditate on his work because he loved his enemies to the very end. So, obviously it's hard to love our enemies because sometimes they mean us evil. I would say another reason that it's hard to love our enemies is a little bit more subtle, and it's because I believe, as I look around me, that we are part of a culture that absolutely 100% glorifies not only not loving our enemies, but killing them. War movies, Marvel movies, gangster movies, and that's just a few of the types of movies. To say nothing of the rest of pop culture, And lest we get caught up in the temptation to blame the artists, to say nothing of the politicians, who very skillfully, many times in just my relatively short lifetime, because keep in mind I'm a very young person, have used patriotism and the expectation of compliance with the state's desires as a way to justify violence. And so they have connected for us the killing of our enemies with the being a good citizen. And that is the water that we swim in. That's the air that we breathe. And if you think that's a political rant, just imagine what I deleted from my notes. Suffice it to say that the teaching to love one's enemies is not only difficult, but deeply, profoundly countercultural. And I would also make this observation. It's one thing to talk about actual death. But I would say just about everything in our culture today also pushes us to redefine who is our enemy. To be anyone and everyone who's not in our, like, top seven or whatever. It's a MySpace reference, I think. (laughs) Maybe I'm not as young as I thought. (laughs) 
<laughs> my son came home with a friend named Tom last night, and I was like, oh, like MySpace Tom. And he was like... <laughs> I had to explain the whole thing. It was extremely embarrassing. Someone cuts you off in traffic? Well, they earned your 18-second long horn blast. Someone has says hello to your girlfriend? The right thing to do is to get up in their face. Someone voted differently than you? They're a fascist. That's the only possible explanation. Someone used a word that six hours ago you learned is kind of offensive to a certain population of people? I would suggest cutting them out of your life immediately. If I'm irritating you right now, I'm going to check off one box of things I set out to do today. Because I'm trying to help you see, as I need to be reminded of myself so often, how quickly we get defensive, how predictably that defensiveness drives us into our corners, how reliably that separation that we are engaging in is mirrored by the other side as they dig in deeper, and how sad it is that we are now increasingly unlikely ever to hear an opinion or viewpoint that we don't already share. Except maybe to quote, tweet it, and dunk on it. Not that I use Twitter. And speaking of things I deleted from my notes, there was a whole section on how it's actually big business in media, social and otherwise, to increase this tendency to separate us even more. Go Google, Google the term marketing segmentation. It's in people's financial interests for us to hate each other over nothing or over something that maybe doesn't rise to the level of enemy. We get madder and madder and they get richer and richer. I deleted it and I still said some of it, but. <laughs> I want you to hear what Rachel says here because it really moved me. The challenge and call for us, no matter our community, no matter our communities, is to be faithful hearers and curious recipients, even and perhaps especially of stories that differ from our own. And remember here that the context is loving our enemies. And so I propose to you that another way we might find help in obeying this commandment or living up to this teaching, if you prefer that language, is to stop redefining the word enemy. Stop getting a bigger bucket every day for our enemies. Because it's hard enough to love enemies when they actually are enemies without lumping everyone who makes us angry or disagrees with us into that same category. So, number one, meditate on Jesus. Dwell in the stories of his suffering. Number two, stop expanding who goes on your enemies list. It's long enough already. And beyond that, 
I really truly believe that loving our enemies is, is going to require us to do some very difficult, painstaking, possibly time-consuming inner work. You may notice if you read this chapter that Rachel once again uses the idea of starting with loving ourselves. The way she says it is that, like, uh, if I'm my own worst enemy, <laughs> which sometimes we are, then loving ourselves is kind of like the starting point for loving our enemies. She, she first said that, by the way, when she was talking about loving our neighbors, <laughs> And said, maybe if I could just love myself first, then I'd have a little bit more capacity to love my neighbor. And this, applying that to loving our enemies is like, that's PhD level work in the same discipline, if you will. And it's especially difficult because so much of our religion has taught us that the current runs in the opposite direction. By which I mean... So many of us have retained a version of Christianity that starts with the idea that we are not lovable, but hateable, detestable beings. That the idea of loving ourselves feels not only like an indulgence, but like a sin. See the earlier chapter, Jonathan Edwards is not my homeboy. And if you're just joining us today, haven't read this book yet, get the book and read that chapter, especially if you were raised in that environment that tells you the starting point for how you look at yourself is loathing. I absolutely love the story that Rachel tells in this chapter about what she did with her hate mail. Did you read this part? Are you familiar with this? She was getting all kinds of hate mail, nasty emails from people, nasty tweets from people. And what she did was she printed them all out and got an origami book and started to fold these printouts into little shapes. And as she did, she she said, I'm sort of praying with my fingers. She made something beautiful out of the ugly hatred that she was receiving every day. And not to be all buzzfeed on you, but you're not going to believe what happens next. (laughs) I'm going to read this because it's so beautiful. She said, I remembered that it was an author of one of those vile letters who, upon reading about my Lenten practice, took the time and energy to email me an apology. An origami bridge, I imagined, except in pixels, not paper. And it was that apology that inspired me to issue a few apologies of my own and to remind myself to be just a little quicker to listen, a little slower to speak, a little more restrained with my budding anger. Listen, nobody sends me hate mail. It would be easy for me to say you should fold your hate mail into origami and that you should therefore, when you start doing that, begin to realize that you have some things to apologize for too. Don't listen to it from me. Listen to it from Rachel who received some of the worst hate mail you could imagine. Who undertook this spiritual practice of turning it into something beautiful and in the course of doing so, not only processed what was being hurled at her, but told the story of it 
leading to the change of heart that happened in someone else that led to a change in her own heart. Right? When you hear the story of Rachel Held Evans folding her hate mail into origami, you don't think, yeah, Rachel had a lot to apologize for. And yet that's what the result of that practice became for her. How incredibly powerful that is. So sometimes the inner work that we need to do in order to love our enemies involves having our own hearts softened. Involves a little bit of the, dare I say it, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we are also acting in the part of the enemy in someone else's story. And in addition to that lofty spiritual principle, I would hope that you don't miss the extremely important quite practical principle, which is this. That inward change did not happen until she took an outward action. This is so often the case. If you've sat there, morning after morning, praying for the power to love your enemies and haven't done anything, and you're wondering why your prayer has gone unanswered, I invite you to consider the possibility that the answer is there, and you just haven't heard it yet. And it comes down to the difference between feeling loving and being loving. This, again, could probably be something we've soaked in from our culture, but we have this idea that love is a feeling. But how many of you all are old enough to remember when St. Toby Mac told us that love is a verb? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I don't know if it was Toby Mac. That's like literally the only name I can come up with. Love is a verb was the slightly dorky uh, Christian rap song that I listened to in youth group and did not take to heart until much later when I realized what it actually meant. Uh, For the more intellectual types, I'll I'll also quote C.S. Lewis, who said, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. I would say, or your enemy. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. And so it might just be that you're not going to feel an ounce of love for your enemies. You may never feel it, but that need not stop you from loving them Because love is something that you can enact and embody even when you feel differently. And my last little coda on that is this. Reject the lie that it's all or nothing. Do not be tempted by that most evil, (laughs) demonic, I might even say, voice. It says, if you can't love them all the way, you're not a good enough Christian to love them at all. Don't bother trying. Just sit there and wait for God to change your heart, and then maybe someday you'll be able to love your enemies. There's that song that says, Someday Never Comes. That's from the 60s. I'm not that old, but I know the song. There's nothing wrong with being old enough to know a song from the 60s, by the way. Gradual, (laughs) thanks be to God, gradual change 
is better than no change at all. I promise you, gradual change is better than no change at all. All right, let me close with this. A little bit from the way that Rachel closes this remarkable book as we say goodbye to the book and as we've unfortunately had to say goodbye to her. The epilogue of her book is called Telos, which is the Greek word for end. And uh, I did get a little choked up reading this chapter because I realized this was the end of her writing career as the end of her life came so soon. You'll be hearing one last bit from Rachel's uh, voice when Sean reads our benediction at the end of the service. But for the end of the sermon, I want to give you this brief thing that she says about telos. She says, one of the biblical words for end is telos. This Greek word doesn't have the air of finality that the English word end has. In other words, it's not a dead end. To the contrary, it's full of life because it has a sense of completion and contentment. It carries the satisfaction of doing what you know you're called to do and the fulfillment of being who you were always meant to be. The telos of an apple tree is to flower and to fruit, producing blossoms and apples and seeds that will propagate the next generation of tree. The telos of a honeybee is to collect pollen and produce honey, working in concert with other honeybees throughout seasons of plenty to store sustenance for seasons of lack. The telos of a human, your telos, my telos, our telos, is to love lavishly and indiscriminately as our God has loved us. Love is what we were made to do. But even more than that, love is who we were made to be. Amen. Our benediction comes from Rachel Held Evans. I pray that while you hear these words, that it will ring true in your hearts today. Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are the ones who doubt. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are the preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who no one else notices. The kids who sit alone at the middle school lunch tables. The laundry people at the hospital. The sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. The closeted. The teens who have to figure out ways to hide the new cuts on their arms. Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are this who are still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. May we all remember that line that you are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Have a wonderful week. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.